أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قادر بشرحي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحلى الأقطة المسانية فقولي بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عن بعد We said that in order to, for anyone to really understand the history of the Prophet Muhammad Sallam, you've got to go much further back. You can't, un- you can't appreciate the, the reality of what Muhammad Sallam had brought down to us as Muslim nation, and you would fail to understand what you have to do if you fail to understand what he had to come up against, is really understand the situations and the dilemmas that he was living within and what Allah SWT sent him for. This story really starts off, we're talking about 2,000 years before the birth of the Prophet. The first thing to understand is the relationship between the Muslims, the Christians and the Jews. And this is one of the big things that a lot of Muslims fail to understand. That what is the connection? But if you understand, we talked about Ibrahim salam, and he had the two children. He had Ismail and Isaac. Ibrahim took Ismail and Hajar to Makkah and left them there. And the story pretty much ended at that point. So if you just imagine how Ismail and Hajar are now left in Makkah and they're just two people and left in this desolate place, we're now going to try and swing the story. You need to understand how the population expanded. If we now talk about the Arab tribes and we talk about the birth of the Arabs, they really come under three categories. One is called the Al-Arabiya, which don't even exist anymore. Okay, these are the pure Arab tribes. Now, if you, look at the, if you look at the history and the lineage of all our prophets, now there's many prophets, there's many mess- and there's messengers. There are 124,000, approximately 123,000, who knows, Allahu Alam, prophets that were sent down. Okay, and they came down from the time of Adam Islam all the way down to the time of, obviously, Muhammad Islam being the last one. And there were n- only a very handful number of messengers. And messengers, we explained, were the m- people, the prophets, who were given a new message to advocate to the people. So when Ibrahim Islam introduced the Abrahamic religion, the first scriptures that came down were the scriptures of Musa Islam, then Dawood Islam, and then Isa bin Maryam, and then eventually to Muhammad Islam. These are the four main scriptures. Now, you cannot look at Judaism and Christianity and Islam as separate religions. They are from a higher level. They are all the same religion. Each prophet is a prophet and a message of Allah, and the message is the same. But each message comes out depending on the circumstances of the people. If you live in a house and there's only you in there, what kind of rules are you going to have for yourself? Nothing, because your rules don't need to exist because it's your own house and you exist by yourself. You can go to sleep whenever you want. You can make as much noise as you want. You can use up the hot water as much as you want. Nobody really cares. But if there's three of you, then you have to have a set of rules. Probably not as strict, a little bit looser, but you can work it out. But if I put 50 people in that house, then we need to put more tighter rules. And what we will do is that we will change some of the rules that existed when there were only three of you. That's called abrogation. That means I'm going to change one rule for a new rule. So at the time of Muhammad Salam or our time today, alcohol is forbidden. But prior to Muhammad Salam, or even whilst Muhammad Salam was a prophet, Alcohol was permitted. Salah was not established until 13 years of his prophethood. Prior to that, it was not an obligation. Fasting was not made an obligation until 13 years after his prophethood. Prior to that, it was not an obligation. So many rules had changed. So if you look at these religions, and if you look at Ibrahim and his two sons, Ismail and Isaac, each one of these had children, and from their children came prophets. And those prophets were given messages 
to remind people of Allah. We live in a nation and society now, we're so corrupted, it's very hard for us to keep point to where we need to be. We have children who don't even look towards Islam as their source or their reference to know what is right and what is wrong. Then there are those of us who do try to do that, but we can't even contain ourselves on what is the right and what is the wrong. And within that, we start arguing amongst ourselves because we believe, oh, he's a Shia, he's a Sunni, he's a Brilvi, he's a Wahhabi, he's an Ahmadi, he's this, he's that. And we have all sorts of issues going on because we fail to understand our own religion, our own belief. So when you try to think it from that perspective, when you think about these two children of Ibrahim Islam, each one of their children came with a message and they reminded the people because they became corrupted. Now, you may come into Islam today and you may start praying and you may start fasting, but you have children. Your children will grow up in a society that engages in kufr and they will get influence. Your job is to teach your children about the rights and the wrongs and you'll do your best effort to try to bring them to the path. Inevitably, those children will be encouraged by the society and they will follow kufr, they will follow taghut. And as they start to do that, and there's no one else to teach them, you pass away, your children follow kufr, their children will grow up and they will, they will adopt. Because their parents won't teach them anything about Islam because they will know nothing about Islam. Abu Huraira was once sitting there with a sahabi and he, Abu Huraira said to this man, he goes, there will come a time in the future, and probably not so far in the future, when a man will hear the adhan and he will say, you know what, I recognize these words. My great-great-grandfather used to say this. And the man who heard this from Abu Huraira, he got so shocked. He was so shook by this because Islam was at its peak. Everyone was so keen into their salah. And he said, what, that's the only of Islam that will be spread? He goes, what will happen to them? How will Allah treat them? He said, just based upon that, if that's all they know about Islam, if that's all they've been taught, because they're not to blame, then Allah will judge their Islam based upon what they know on that, and they will enter paradise just from this. But what Abu Huraira was alluding to is the fact that eventually Islam will wipe out. Now, you can just see it for yourself. If I asked you guys here, what do you know about the life of the Prophet? What do you know about his five companions? Name me three of his wives. Name me the situation that the Kuffar attack when they say to him, Oh, Muhammad Sallallahu you know, he married a, a girl that was under the age. How would you argue that point? When Muhammad Sallallahu had executed these Jews in Medina, how would you explain that? Why did he do that? So if you think about these questions, even if I ask you a simple question about Salah, where did Salah come from? What was the importance of Salah? Which part of the seerah, which part of the story of the life of the Prophet introduced Salah into our religion? Now, if you don't know that, now use your own common sense. What are you going to teach your kids? You've got teachers coming to school, Muslim teachers, and you've seen them saying there's no contradiction between being a Muslim and being a lesbian or being gay or being any LGBT. I could not find anything in the Quran. And then you ask the children, and the children say, we don't know, we don't even read it. And then they come back home to you and they say, Dad, you explain to me where you, which eye of the Quran you're going to look at. So you can see that this is, this is getting out of control. The spiral effect is we're just losing it. So when I say not in the too far distance, right? So if you think about our parents who came here and they knew Urdu, they knew Punjabi, how much of us know Urdu and Punjabi now? How many of our own kids speak it? That's how quick Islam would die, like that language. So Islam is dying very, very quickly. 
right? It's dispersing and it's just being eradicated. So this is why it's important to understand the beginning to the end, because once you know the fundamentals of your religion, everything becomes very, very easy. Quran doesn't exist without Sirah, Sirah doesn't exist, exist without the Quran, because Quran was revealed through the life of the Prophet. So you need to understand that, so you will not understand those verses. So each of these prophets, they came down and they came with a message. Then they had the label of being Jews. And then there was a new message and then the labels changed. Then there came another message, Isa bin Maryam, and then they were called Christians. Forget about the titles that were given. They are all of our books and they are all of our religions and all of our beliefs. And each one of them prophets all predicted and said there will be one more to come. And we're going to talk about how all of this now impacts us as Muslims. Just, I just want you to think about time scales. So we talked about if Muhammad Sallam was born, go 2,000 years before him, and that's when Ibrahim Islam, his great-great-great-grandfather, existed. Go 600 years before the birth of Muhammad Sallam, and that's when Isa bin Maryam existed. And when Isa bin Maryam passed away, a hundred years after that, they tried to collate their version of the hadith. What's hadith? Is the narration of the of the prophets, right? So they collected, and they tried to put together what they believed to be the word of Isa bin Maryam, and then they formed formalized their Bible. But they had issues, right? They had problem. They had problems in terms of what they thought Isa bin Maryam was, like everyone else does. We have a problem even today. Is Muhammad Sallam a human? Is he Noor? Is he this? Who is that? Why is it so difficult to believe they had that problem when you have that problem? We have the same exact problem. So they had a massive big debate about this. So one camp said, he's just a prophet. He's just a man that was sent by God to remind us. Another camp said, no, he is part of this trinity. And the third one saying that he is God himself. And they argued amongst themselves and eventually they came to the agreement that no, he is actually God himself. So Trinity existed way before the birth of Prophet Sallam. And the reason I say that, because when people say, oh, these ayah of the Quran that says you can marry the Ahl Kitab, you can eat the food of Ahl Kitab, and they say, but they're not Ahl Kitab. Why not? Because these are the originals who believed in, you know, the one God. No, Trinity existed way before Muhammad Sallam, before the Quran was even revealed. And the Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Imran, what is Allah doing? He's cursing these people. Yeah, this same Ahl Kitab, he's cursing them because of their jahliya and because of the fact that they moved away from their source of their religion. So Ibrahim has two children, Ismail, park him to the side because that's where Imam's son comes from. It is Isaac that you know all the other prophets, Harun, uh, Hazrat Musa, Salam, Isa bin Maryam, etc. They are referred to as Bani Israel from the Quran. And Israel means Israel, and Israel is the nickname of Jacob, and Jacob is the son of Isaac, Isaac. And all of these prophets come from Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob's nickname is, is Israel. And Bani means the people of. So when the Quran says the people, the Bani Israel, who is he referring to? The children of Jacob, all of these people that, that Allah Ta'ala sent these prophets to. When you send all these prophets, they became so jahil. They were showing off, oh, we got this prophet, we got this prophet, we got, we're all right, we're good, we're blessed, we're the chosen people. And they changed their religion, they changed their views. Even the Jews became idol worshippers. Even the Christians definitely became idol worshippers. Even now, if you look at the Jews, the Jews will say, we'll enter, the, we'll enter a mosque, 
We don't have a problem because they're monotheistic belief. But we won't enter a church because they're idol worshippers, because they have their saints and everything. So now we understand this. Now we're going to understand where these Arabs came from. So Al-Arabiya, if you go to Hud and Sahleh, right, for example, these are the prophets that came way, way before. And during this kind of period, we don't know exactly. If you look at Arabia, they existed on the east side of Arabia. And that's where you see, you know, the massive big constructions of buildings and mountains that they found, historical artifacts of how did they make these houses and buildings within the within the mountains. Because Allah Ta'ala describes that they were huge people, they were blessed people, they had engineering ability, and Allah Ta'ala gave them many gifts. But as always, when you are given the dunya, and this is a known fact, if you cannot balance yourself in the dunya, there is no such thing as I can have my cake and eat it. Not really. Because the more cake you eat in this dunya, meaning the more luxuries you go for, the more you chase after money, you will sell your religion. No man can stand in front of the face of Allah and say he won't. Hadr Uthman, when he became a Khalif, and they always criticized Hadr Uthman from that perspective because there was so much wealth and he bought in his family and so forth, and then the corruption began. That doesn't mean Hadr Uthman was wrong, Hadr Uthman was a great Khalif and a great companion. But you can see the corruption. Hazrat Umar went against it. When they bought him the wealth, when they conquered the Roman Empire in Syria, and they bought him all the gold, they cried. The Sahabi said, is he crying because he's happy? Because that's the first time we've come out of poverty. He says, I'm not crying because you come out of poverty. I'm crying because when I see this wealth, I know there's corruption around the corner for my ummah. And they will forget Allah. We live in a society, we live in a materialistic society. We're a consumer society. Everything we think about when we wake up, I'm going to do the extension to the house, I'm going to buy the next car, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get that, whatever. We don't think about this approach, we lose it. So it's conceivable to understand that these nations, when they get do really well, they forget. Allah sends two messages. He sends a prophet, he says, just remind them to be thankful and to keep worshipping me. And they will have the, the good of this dunya. But they didn't, they stopped. So people at Hud and Sahla, they came to these nations to remind them. And they didn't listen. And we know from the stories of these nations that Allah SWT completely destroyed them. Their, their reminiscence of any existence doesn't exist anymore. They're gone. So Al-Arabiya is finished. Then there came another tribe called the Al-Qataniya. Yeah? They're from a man by the name of Qatan. Now they say Qatan originally was from the area of Iraq. And they were in Iraq. This is where Ibrahim Islam was. So they kind of spoke another language, Aramaic and so forth. But eventually when they moved to the southern region of Arabia, they became Arabs, they, that's the Arabic language began, and they moved into the area of Yemen. Okay, so south part of Saudi, that's where they moved to. So the first Al-Arabiya, centuries ago, disappeared, died, finished, don't exist anymore. Now you've got this new tribe called the Qataniya that now moved to Yemen and hundreds and hundreds of years later their children existed and they became very, very wealthy, became very rich. They had great agriculture and so forth. Now, something happened to this bunch of people, this nation in Yemen, this Qataniya tribe, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. As a result of the devastation that Allah sent them, this tribe split up and they roamed through Arabia. One of those Arab, pure Arab tribes ended up going and now connect to the other story of Hajj and Ismaili. Now, just imagine they're sitting in Makkah on their own and Ismail is growing up. Mother's there, they've got the Zamzam there and they're living off that. 
when the devastation occurs, which we'll talk about that story, one of the tribes called the Jurum tribe make their way out of Yemen because it's destroyed to find new land where they can live. And guess where they end up? They're coming up towards Makkah. They can see the birds. They can see the animals. So they know that this land has water. And they see Hajar. And they say to Hajar, can we stay here with you? So this tribe lived with Hajar. And Ismail, who was non-Arab, married one of the girls from the Jurum tribe who were Arab. Non-Arab and Arab come together. What do their children become? Half-caste. And they are called the Adaniya tribe. And the why they call Adaniya? Because from the ancestor of Ismail, there was a man called Adnan. They tag it to that. Eventually, you know, you, you'll have Yusuf, for example, 20 years down the line, they're going to call you the Yusuf tribe. They won't even refer to your granddad. And then 50 years from there, if, if you have a great-great-grandson named John, they'll be called the John tribe. That's They'll tag on to the last few generations. So Adnan was one of the children of Ismail, and he was like a few hundred years before Muhammad And they were called Adaniya. And from that came the Quraysh. The Quran talks about this story. It's, called in, it's mentioned in Surah Al-Sabah. Sabah is a name of a person, and it also makes reference to Sabah is a person who captures people. So these people of the Qatan, they ended up in Yemen. So we're talking hundreds of years before Muhammad was even born. Whilst they're now in this region, they were doing so well, and they were so wealthy, they had a dam. This dam was built between two mountains. Their engineering brain was so phenomenal that they built from rocks and rope, netted rope, and they held the water. This dam was three and a half miles wide and in length, right? So it's like a square dam. And it irrigated 70 valleys. And it had so much food that they used to say in the Ayah of the Quran, for Sabah there was indeed a sign in their dwelling place where they lived, two gardens on the right hand and on the left. And Allah says, eat of the bounty from your Lord and thank him. Good was the country and forgiving was Allah, but they turned away. Again, you give any human being riches and wealth and they can enjoy it. What happens? You get focused on the material world and you slowly, slowly start to figure Allah. We sent down upon them the torrent of Al-Arim and changed their gardens into ones of bitter fruit. They had beautiful fruit and bitter fruits. They're talking about certain types of plants where there were more thorns and there was a little tiny, little tiny fruit that you can get to it. So you have to get through the thorn to get to that fruit. Imagine if you're starving, how much work you have to do just to get to that little fruit. So Allah is saying we replaced their fruit that they used to carry. They used to carry baskets on the head, the women. And they said, we didn't even have to climb to get out. We walk and the fruits because they're right, we used to drop into our baskets. So here Allah then goes on to say, and they changed their bit of fruit to tamarisk and a few low trees. Thus Allah said, we punish them for their disbelief and it's not the disbelievers alone who we punish. And we praise between them and the villages. We had blessed other settlements around them. You can see the settlements were blessed, well spaced for their journey. What that means is, Imagine going from Langley to Maidenhead and every tree and every plant you go by was either strawberries or raspberries or bananas or pineapples. There wasn't one part of that journey that had a gap. There'd be no plant. So there was no, Allah says, there was no space left. Because of this, they got so much arrogance came out. They started saying things, oh God, life is so easy. What are we going to do? I wonder what it would be like 
if your things were hard? I wonder like what it be journey would be like if we had to travel so many miles to get food. Not thinking, what are you saying? The arrogance started coming, oh, we got everything, everything has come from us. So Allah then responded, because they said travel, because for them travel in safety by day and night, there was no problem because there was no issues for them. Then they responded, oh Allah, extend the distance between our travel stops. Make it difficult so we have this gap so we know what it feels like. They harmed themselves and we made of them tales to be told and scattered them asunder. In there are the signs for who are truly patient, thankful. SubhanAllah, Allah is saying, we destroyed them so that they can become a tale in your story. We're talking about them now and they existed. Allah destroyed them and that will happen to this nation and the next nation and the next nation. And our generations will talk about us and say, oh, in Slaad, there used to be a Muslim community. But they became jahil. They had mosques. But the mosques, if you go there, there only used to be two lines for Isha. There used to be one line for Maghrib. Juma used to be half packed. And eventually Islam just completely diminished because everybody was after money or they were selling drugs. And they got so arrogant, they forgot going to the mosque. And eventually Allah destroyed them. Where did they end up? Some ended up prison. Some died with heart attacks. Some of them, their children left them. The nation was destroyed. So whatever happened to such and such, we don't know. The whole family disintegrated. This is the story. Allah destroys you. He just picks you apart. And then what's left of you? And then you had torment in this dunya. And then on the day of judgment, Allah says, the game's not over. We're going to start again, your torment. That was just a taster in the dunya. Now the real torment is going to begin. You think it was over there? Now's the beginning of your torment. So the story was that the dam was going to get destroyed. Allah had planned because of the arrogance. So there was a man by the name of Amr bin Amr. So he was one of the descendants of Qatan. Imagine, it's like Beverly Hills, you've got super rich people all living there. So this man, he notices that there's these rats and rodents that are coming to the dam. He starts to get concerned. And he re knows that eventually these rodents are going to burrow in and the whole dam is going to collapse. If the dam collapses, that would be it. The whole land would be flooded. The whole vegetation would be destroyed because if you flood vegetation, they will die. You can't replant them. You won't have the seeds to replant them. Pure devastation. So this man, he wanted to get out of this land and sell his real estate at premium price. So he goes to his young son. He says, in front of everyone, in the middle of the high street, wherever you want to call it, in the middle of the town center, get into a big argument with me. And then I want you to slap me in the face. So they do this, get into a bit of squabble, and the son slaps the father. The father says, I am not prepared to stay in a land where a son is going to beat his father. And the other nobleman thought, this is great. If he's going to leave, he's going to sell his land, let's buy it. And what does he do? He sells his land to them, and he takes his children. So the story goes on that when they leave, then eventually the torrent of Aram comes, and this dam gets completely destroyed. And when it was destroyed, it completely rampaged the whole land hectares of land just completely destroyed vegetation gone food gone people went to starvation there was famine that was it now they say Qatan or Sabah had 10 children and when we say 10 remember when I talk in these terms I'm talking about ancestral children right so their progeny six remained in Yemen and four took their chances into Arabia and Arabia was dead land one of them, I said, was the Jurum tribe that went to Makkah and Ismail married into them. 
The second of them was the Khuzar tribe. They are the tribe that ended up outside of Makkah, who eventually were the introduction and the destruction of the monotheistic belief that Ismail was teaching. Because the Kaaba was built, Judah tribe became Muslims, they followed Islam, and then eventually when the Khuzar tribe came to take power off these people, it was one of their men, a man by the name of Amr bin Luhui, who introduced the first idol from Syria. And then that's where the idol worship began, right? So just park that to the side, we'll come to that story. The other tribes went to Syria or north part of Syria, north part of Arabia. They were the Arabs who became Christians. And the tribe is called Ghassan tribe. Now, if you remember, there was a great battle that happened called the Battle of Mu'ta. This was the battle, the famous battle where Khalid bin Walid was introduced into Islam, right? This is when he became the general first time. This battle was a great battle because there was only 3,000 Muslims sent to the land of Ghassan. Because the Ghassan fight, people fighting them because they were backed up by the Roman Empire. And when they went there, they were faced up. They thought they were going to face the Ghassan tribe because they were basically they were intercepting their caravans, raiding them, causing them economic issues. So Muhammad sent 3,000 men under Zayb bin Haritha, there was other Sahabi, Abdullah bin Ruaha, for example, Jafar bin Abu Talib, Khalid bin Walid was with them. Little to their surprise, when they got there, they were expecting to fight about maybe 5,000 people. They were faced up between quarter of a million to half a million Roman soldiers. So 3,000 Muslims fought half a million, approximately, historic. That's what the Ghassan tribe. The other two tribes, or the other tribe, ended up in Medina. And they became what you know as the Ansar, the Aus and the Khazraj. So they came from the Yemen side. And then there were a few other dotted around. So you, now you understand where these families are coming from. The six children that stayed behind, they then eventually over time rebuilt their country and they became kings. Now their religion was the religion of the Persians, who were the fire worshippers. Now in this region, in historical sense, you'll know that this region of Yemen, this Qatan tribe, I'll give you some historical figures so you understand. The people that were part of the Qatan tribe were people like Queen Sheba. So in history, Queen Sheba, she was from the Qatan, the Yemenis, and they worshipped their son. Hazrat Suleiman was sent there to correct the people as well. They were a huge, massive empire of generational people. So the six that remained behind of the families they basically eventually became the leaders. Now, those leaders that had titles of being kings and the terms that were given to them were called Tuban. So, in the Roman Empire, who's a Roman leader? Caesar. Caesar's a title. In Abyssinia, the leader of the Christians, what's his title? He's called the Negus. And if you go to Persia, who are the leaders of the Persian Empire? Kisra or Kosro. And for the Muslims, Sakhalif. So these are the titles that you have. So now let's talk about, these are all building up to the big bang of Muhammad coming about. So you've got a society full of corruption now. They're all messed up. They're all getting deeper and deeper into their taghut and their kufr. And it's getting worse as they go along. Because as much as Allah reminds them, their nation gets destroyed, some will listen and they won't. But it gives you an idea how big and vast this nation were that they were reminded as always, right, people just fall into jahiliyyah. The first story that we kind of come across is 
there was a, a man by the name of Tubal Nasser. A couple of things I'm just kind of trying to join the story. This man, Amr bin Amr, you know, the one who made his son slap him in the face, he by trade was also a soothsayer, meaning he had connections with the jinn, so he would do magic and he can predict the future and so forth. And so was his wife. And the reason I say that, just part that to the side. Now this man, Tubal al-Nasr, he has a dream. And one day he calls his leaders or his MPs, you want to call it, to the, uh, to the assembly. And he says to them, I had a dream last night that is seriously concerning me. Bring me someone that can interpret my dream. It's a no problem. Our land has people who are good at this. In those days, everyone was, was into black magic, witchcraft, soothsayers, etc., right, where they can predict the future. And they brought the people along. So each of them, they came to the king and they said, oh, king, tell us what the dream is and we'll interpret for you. He goes, no, 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 we're not going to do it this way. If you truly know, if you truly believe your soothsayers, you tell me what my dream is and then you interpret it. Then the nobleman decided there's no one in our land that can do, do that. But there are two others outside of the land of Yemen who can actually explain this. So there were two characters, one named by the Sikh and the other one is Sateh. Both of these characters were born deformed. So Sati, for example, was deformed. He didn't have any arms and legs. He was almost like, he, they said his head was belted into his chest. Now, what was interesting was he was born the same time as Sikh was. Sikh, when he was born, he was only half a human being. So he was disabled. So Amr bin Amr's wife, who was also a soothsayer at the time, before they left, when these two were born, she basically spat in their mouth, right? Passed his saliva to give them the gift of telling fortunes or, or the future. So the nobleman said, we and they were grown by this time, they said, these two can probably interpret your dream. He says, call for them. So they traveled a very long way. So Sahdeh arrived first, and they bring him into the palace. So the king says to Sahdeh, I had a very serious vision. It amazed me, but it petrified me. Tell me what that dream was and interpret it correctly for me. So Sate said, okay. He said, you saw a fire emerge from the darkness and it fell on low ground and it consumed every living thing to the point that nothing was left but skulls on the land. The king said, you not made one single error. So what do you think that dream means? Sate said to him, I swear by all the snakes between the plains of our land that the Abyssinians will descend upon your land and they will take control over it. The king then said, by hearing what you're telling me upsets me greatly because I was expecting to leave these land to the progeny of my children. Will this occur now or later on? He said, by your father, I swear this will occur sometime in the future probably about 60 or 70 years after you, right? Now, this is leading up towards Muhammad Sallam. So the king said, but will their control, will it be a long period or will it be a short period? He said, it will be cut down by some 70 years and then they will be killed and they'll be expelled in flight. So someone else will come in and take and destroy them all. The king said, who will then come after them? Who will kill them and expel them? He said, a man called Iramdu Yazan, he will follow. And emerging from the area of Adan to fight them, and he will not leave any one of them. The king said, and 
then what will happen to his error and his control? He said, it will be cut short. And who will do this? And he said, a prophet pure to whom revelation comes from the highest heavens. And the king said, and from where will this prophet come? And he said, he will be a descendant. And he, he mentioned a descendant at that time from Hazrat Ismail, one of his descendants. And the rule will be his and his people until Yamukyama, until the end of time. So we're talking hundreds of years now. He's man, he has he's already got visions from the Shayateen. Now, the jinns, right? And I'll tell you why. Because we know the jinns from the Quran that they were able to go to the heavens. And when I mean heavens, I'm talking about the layers of the universe, and that's a different conversation. But they can hear the conversations of the angels. And it's not that they were eavesdropping, they were eavesdropping, but Allah allowed them to hear it. Because Allah wanted to drip feed the insan so they can understand what is to come. This is all planned. So after he had finished with him, then Sheikh arrived. Then the king, he said, Sheikh, tell me, what was my dream about? And he said, I swear by all the men who live between the two stony plains, the Abyssinians, they will oppress all the young and reign over all your land. Again, the king said, I'm very disturbed by this. And he said, and how long will this happen? When will this happen and how long will it happen for? He said, it's not going to happen in your period, but it will happen a period later after you. And then a great man will emerge to save your people and inflict on your enemies all disgrace. The king said, and who will this great saviour be? He said, he will be a young man who is guilt-free and faultless, and it will emerge from the line of Du Yazan. So the king said, and will his reign last? He said, no. He said, after that, it will be brought short by a messenger that will be dispatched, who will bring nothing but truth and justice, and he will come from a people of religion and virtue in whom power shall reside until the day of separation. The king said, what is the day of separation? He said, a day when the pious shall be rewarded and when the call shall be made from the heavens and the living and the dead will hear, they will rise and the men shall be gathered to the appointed place. You'll be brought where your kiamat will happen and then the pious shall receive the victory and the rewards. And then the king said, is this really true what you predict? He said, by the Lord of the heavens and the earth, everything I have told you is the truth. And it was amazing that two individuals who had no connection both predicted the coming of the Prophet. After that, his death, his son took control. His name was Tuban Asad. So Tuban Asad decided that he was going to travel to, so from Yemen, you've got to go through Saudi to get to Iraq and Iran. Okay, now because their views and their religions were very much worshipping fire and so forth, then their connection with the Persian Empire was strong right they had good trade relationship with them he wanted to take a journey so he took his son and his whole entourage with him they took the journey through medina and in medina in the very early state before muhammad was born you had the the, the first tribes that went there from yemen remember and i said out of that those tribes became the Aws and the khazraj two tribes were born from that family if you don't understand this now, Aws and the Khazraj are the two tribes who helped the Prophet Muhammad in Medina. They were the ones that assisted him. So they are those descendants. So he travels to Medina and in Medina are also the Jews. Now what are the Jews doing in Medina? 
The Jews live in Al-Sham. They live in those areas. What are they doing there? The reason the Jews are there is because in their scriptures, after Isa bin Maryam, even after they tried to kill Isa bin Maryam, the Jews, the, the ones who are religious and the ones who are decent, they said in our scriptures, there's one more prophet yet to come. In the scriptures, there's one more prophet after Isa bin Maryam. And we need to find him. Because when Allah stopped any other prophet after Isa bin Maryam on the Isaac side, they started to get upset. Allah hasn't sent us a prophet. We had so many prophets, we got none. We need to find the one saviour. And in their books, it said he will come, but he will come from a land where there will be palm trees. The only place that had palm trees was Medina. And so they left and came to Medina thinking that Muhammad was going to arrive. And they came very early. No one knew what time he was going to come. And so that's how the Jews ended up in Medina and they started living with the Arabs there. So Tubal Asad turns up from Yemen. He leaves his entourage and his son there and he goes off to Iraq. On the way back and to his devastation, he finds out that his son's been murdered. This has enraged him. And he finds out that the reason why this happened was because one of the entourage that was left climbed up one of the trees of the Jews, decided to cut it down and eat the fruit. Now that's a man's property. So the Jew ended up killing him. And as a result, the son got involved and they killed the son as well. So when Asad came back, King Asad, he was furious and he said, I am now going to wage war against the Jews here. The, the also the Khazra, the Arab tribes there, decided that they're going to help the Jewish people. And that history goes on because the Jews always had their thumb on top of their head of the Arabs for a very long time because they were the businessmen. They had the money, they had the wealth, and they kept everyone underneath them. So obviously they were going to assist them because they'll get paid or they needed them, right, for good relationships in the future. He's about to now prepare war. The Arabs are now getting their, you know, their army ready and two rabbis appeared and they go to Tuban Asad and say, can we give you advice? They said, what advice is that? Do not fight these people here because you will enrage God and you will put a curse upon yourself. What are you talking about? Don't you know a prophet is to come to this land of Medina? In the future, he will come and this land is blessed. And if you do anything in this land against these people and on this land, then you are causing nothing but bad omen against yourself. So King Asad was very impressed by what they said. He said, then what do you suggest then? He said, there is a place in Makkah called the Kaaba that our father Ibrahim, they built this. We suggest you go there and you show your respect, do your tawaf and do your cut your hair and do your sacrifice. Now, if you just notice, I've just explained the Hajj ceremony hundreds and hundreds of years before the Prophet's even born. So Hajj is not introduced by Islam, by the Prophet Hajj is a ceremony and an introduction of a virtue by Ibrahim And we still adopt it today into our religion. He said to the rabbis, you're going to come with me. So he travels from Medina. To get to Medina to Makkah, it's from north to south. You've got to go past certain towns. One of those towns is Taif. They, remember I said to you that one tribe was a Jurum tribe and the other tribe was a Khuzar tribe who lived on the outskirts. They run into a bunch of these guys from the Khuzar tribe. They meet the king and they say to the king, a man like you, you deserve to have the riches of this land. 
Should we tell you where you can find great riches, gold, <coughs> sapphire, you name it, it's there. And you can take it back to your land. He said, where is it? He says, it's in that place called the Kaaba. They wanted him to go there and destroy the Kaaba and kill everyone. He went to the rabbis, he says, what do you think? He said, they lied to you. They want you to destroy the Kaaba because it is the house of Allah. But at that time, we know now that the idols were introduced. So we have gone after the point of Amr bin Luhi from the Khuzar tribe who introduced the idols. Because they wanted to destroy this monotheistic belief, these two said destroy the Kaaba. When the rabbis said to him that they're lying to you, they want you to kill these people, then Tubun Asad calls these two, cuts their hands off, cuts their feet off and leaves them to die. He then makes his way to Makkah, does the whole Hajj or the Umrah uh, ceremony and does the Hulk. Stays there for six days, six nights, has a dream and in that dream he is ordered to clothe the Kaaba. Now you can see where the Kaaba and the clothing comes from now. So he clothes it with palm fronds, yeah, you know, palm leaves, big ones, and he closed it with that because it was bare. The next night he has another dream where he's ordered to clothe it with beautiful cloth. And he orders cloth from Yemen. And today, what is the cloth on the Kaaba? It's Yemeni <coughs> cloth. That is where that traditions come from. And every so often they change it, don't they? That is Yemeni's cloth. So that's where the tradition before Muhammad Sallam. He then takes the rabbis back with him to Yemen. His people, his noblemen, his MP, find out that he's now adopted the religion of the monotheistic belief, yeah? The oneness of Allah. So we, we still say that they're Muslims now. They prevent him from entering. They said, Tuban Asad, you can't enter. They said, why? He said, we've heard that you've adopted the religion of these people. But our religion is the worship of sun and the fire. He said, you're wrong. You need to follow their religion. This religion is a correct religion, believing in the one God. They said, okay, they have a tradition. They said, let's put it to the fire. What they mean by that is, you bring your priest, we'll have our priest. They have this fire that comes from a cave and they put the people in front of that. And you do your prayers, you do your prayers and whoever the fire consumes, they're the ones in the wrong. They said, fine. So they get their <coughs> priest who've got their books and their chanting, whatever they have. And the two rabbis come with their books where they're reciting their verses of Islam effectively. And they move forward towards the fire. And they stay in a position that really the fire is supposed to come towards you. The fire started coming further towards the Yemeni's priest, the polytheist. And they started to get scared. And they got berated by the people. They said, don't move, stay where you are, right? Because you want to prove them wrong. And eventually they got burnt and they consumed. Then the people were convinced that the rabbis' religions was the truth. And they also found the rabbis, they said, also there's a temple here that they all speak to, that there's a voice that comes. They go, there's nothing but the demons, because the Jews and the Christians know that they're jinns and they're shitins. They think that they, these people are part of, they think it's gods. Right? They think that these are the gods from the heavens and they think they're nothing but jinns, they're shatins. And all they did, they did a small little exorcism and they removed and it went into a dog and then they killed the dog. So now the land of Yemen is now conquered and governed by Judaism. Eventually what happens is Tuban Asad passes away and he has a son, inherits it. There's two sons, there's three sons actually. Right? 
He has a, a son by the name of Hassan. He has a son by the name of Amr and a son by the name of Yusuf. Now, Yusuf is very, very young. Okay. He's a very small kid. So if you imagine Hassan is about in his 20s, Yusuf is, is you know, six, seven years old. Hassan now becomes the king, goes a bit crazy, says, I'm going to wage war against X, Y, and Z. The people go get upset. Nobody wants to go to war. Nobody wants to lose their livelihood and lo lose their, their wealth and their families. So they say to the brother of Hassan, Amr, if you kill your brother, we'll make you leader because he's just going mad and just going to war. We don't want this. So Amr comes by night and he kills his brother. Amr, when, they, when he's back in Yemen now, he starts to suffer from insomnia. He goes to all of the, the great priests and the great leaders and says, why am I suffering from insomnia? I can't sleep. It's been years. He goes, any man that's killed his family member will always suffer from insomnia. You can't sleep at night because of the guilt that you carry. And as a result of that, because it was having a detrimental effect on his health, he went to all those people that encouraged him to kill his brother and he killed all of them. And eventually, because of his health, he died. So then what happened was, there was a gap in the leadership. One of the generals decided to do a coup d'etat, military coup. He comes in, his name was Dushanatir. And he's a treacherous individual, power hungry, always watch all these kings and these families taking over. He found his opportunity, he comes in. And when he becomes leadership, all of the royal blood who were younger, he used to just, just mistreat them. But he had a disgusting habit that he used to rape them as well. This is what he was like. He made a chambers in his room and he called the soldier and says, bring their young to me. So what he would do, he'd have this chamber and they would bring up and he would brutally rape them and he would come out and he used to have a toothpick in his mouth and he would look down at the soldiers to give the indication, I've finished with them. One day he gave an order to the soldiers and he said, bring me that kid Yusuf. The younger brother. Now he's in his teens. He's about 18, 19 years old. This kid Yusuf knows what's going to happen. So he carries a blade between his toes. As he goes up into his chamber, these soldiers are laughing and joking, thinking this guy's going to, he's, you know, he's going to be dealt with. When the opportunity arrives, when he tried to attack him, he took out the blade and he sliced his throat and killed him. He got so angry, he cut his head off and he put it on a stake on the balcony when he came back downstairs the two soldiers were laughing at him you've been dealt with he said have a look upstairs and you'll find out and they looked up and they saw the the head of the of the king they quickly ran up to this man yusuf and they said to him we want to make you our leader we hated this individual he was a treacherous leader you have to now because you're the original bloodline you have to become the king so this man now became the king so yusuf now becomes the Tuban. This now leads on to the story, Surah Al-Buruj. This man, Yusuf, was a decent individual, but because of his ordeal, over time, he lost it. And he started to think that he was God. And he used to have a sorcerer that used to do witchcraft, do magic, so that he would convince the people that he is God, and people were stupid enough to believe it. So this story will lead on to the next king, which is him, how Christianity gets introduced into this land by this boy who challenges the king. But Jazakallah khair inshallah we'll see you guys next week.